The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Make note of the fact, obviously, this uh, coming week we celebrate Veterans Day, and I just want to say thank you to all of you who have served um, in our military and have, uh, in some part, made this day possible, really the freedom to be able to come together and hang a sign outside and encourage people to come on in and hear the gospel. So thank you for your service and may God's blessing be on you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity that we have now to gather as your church. God, I pray and ask that you'd be with us, that you would guide us as we look at your word. God, I pray that as we finish out our time in the book of Colossians, that we will reflect back on it and will be blessed by what we have learned, that we will have grown as we've gone through it. God, I pray and ask for wisdom as we look at these remaining verses, that you would just help us to see things clearly, to see what you would have us learn from these verses and apply them to our lives. God, we pray and ask for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning. God, I pray especially Uh, for Spruce Head Community Church and for Pastor Chris, that you'd bless him, give him boldness in the pulpit, that you'd encourage him, that you'd work mightily in and through his ministry and use him for your glory. God, I pray not just for him, but for all the Bible-believing churches that are in this area, that you would just grow their ministries, that you'd fill their buildings, God, that you would just help them to proclaim the gospel and that we would be serious about not building our kingdoms, but building your kingdom. God, I just pray and ask now, as we look to your word, that we would just remember the gospel and that we would be encouraged by it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Colossians. And uh, as we've done so, we've seen a lot of different things. Namely, one of the things that Paul has addressed to the Colossian believers is that these false teachers have come in and they've tried to add things to the gospel. They've, they've tried to introduce new ideas, new thoughts, uh, additional things that they must do in order to be saved or in order to grow in their relationship with Christ. And Paul has repeatedly said, Jesus is enough. That, that the gospel is sufficient for their salvation and their sanctification, their growth. And then uh, the last couple of weeks we looked at talking to God about men, namely prayer, uh, and then we talked, to, we talked about talking to men about God, evangelism. And on the heels of that, we come to the remaining verses of Colossians. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 4, verses 17 through 18. And before I read this, I want to say there was a real temptation on my part to just say, yeah, I don't really know what to say here. There's a long list of these personal greetings, And yet I know that it's in God's Word. I know that it's there for a reason. I know that it has a purpose. And I know that there's something here for us to understand and apply. So I decided to to work our way through it. I was taking the section as a whole, 7 through 18, not a passage that I would normally um, be the most comfortable preaching through because it's a big passage and it doesn't really fit my style of preaching, but God knows that and God has challenged me in that as well and I praise Him. For that, as we look to His Word, let's, uh, let's be prayerful that God will speak to us. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, 
our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in, the, in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read to the, in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a lot of information in these verses. We could go any number of directions, but what I want to primarily do today is consider three characteristics of being a faithful servant of God that are clearly evident in the text. And if you know me, you know that would probably take about 25 minutes. So we have to have a sermon before the sermon. So before we do that, though, I just want to notice a few basic observations. Just a couple of observations about the people that are mentioned here by Paul. Because I think it's going to give us an understanding that will help us better look at these principles. The first observation I want you to see is that God uses ordinary people. Um, When I look at this list, I'm just amazed at the fact that for the most part, these were not religious leaders or apostles or professional ministers. They're not pastors, many of them. They're just ordinary people whom God used mightily for His glory. Some of them we know nothing about other than what these words tell us. The second observation I want you to see is that God uses people from various cultures and backgrounds. Among the people in this list, we have Tychicus. He's a Gentile who became a close associate with Paul. We have Onesimus, a runaway slave with a debt to his master. We have Aristarchus, who is a Jewish believer who journeyed with the Apostle. We have Mark, the man who abandoned Paul on his first missionary journey, but now had become one of his greatest helpers. We have Epaphras, a church planter. And we have Luke, a doctor, right? A doctor who write, ends up writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So we have a diverse group of people, various cultures, various backgrounds. And along with them, there's many others in that list as well. And then thirdly, I want you to notice, the third thing I want you to just notice is that God gifts people differently and calls them to different tasks. 
that each of these people are given different, de- different gifts and given different tasks because they're uniquely uh, gifted and uniquely talented in certain areas and they're called to do something special for the Lord. Some of the people here mentioned they traveled to Colossae. Others, they stayed and ministered with Paul. We see that some of them had a very visible ministry, while some of the others served primarily as encouragers or just being hospitable and opening up their homes. So in these verses, as we look at these various gifts and these different callings, we see Ephesians 4.12 being played out. We see different gifts being used for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body of Christ. We see them equipped and being used for the work of service so that Christ's body might be built up. You know, many years ago, I attended a conference that talked about how to build and grow churches. Uh, as a side note, I'm much more skeptical of this kind of thing now, right, than I was then. I've come to realize that while strategic planning may have its place in corporate America, not so much in the church. That Jesus is the one who builds His church. That while we should focus on uh, being used by God for that, we also need to recognize that Christ is the one who builds and grows His church. The great book called The Trellis and the Vine talks about we spend too much time focusing on building the trellis, the programs, the nature by which the church may grow, and not enough time nurturing the vine. You see, our role, my role especially, is primarily to share the Gospel. To let the Gospel do its work in you and in me and continue to come back to the Gospel that God may be glorified and to claim the promise that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So anyway, this conference that, that I attended, at this conference, what was taught was that you needed to create this target demographic and build your ministry around people with uh, certain likes and interests. So you'd find people with similar likes, similar interests, and then you'd build your ministry around that. So it went something kind of like this. Meet Harmony Harry. So here's Harmony Harry. He's a fictional guy. And Harmony Harry, he's 50 years old, and he's a fisherman. He's interested in trucks. He likes hunting. So you should build your ministry around Harmony Harry. Everything you should do should be to minister to Harmony Harry. The problem is, that's not at all what we see in the life of the early church. It's not what God intends for His church. What about a guy who likes to play the drums and really isn't interested in hunting? Isn't a fisherman? Doesn't drive a truck? I don't know. What about a guy who likes to go shoe shopping, of all things, right? That we're all different and we're meant to be the body of Christ together. See, God has intended His church to function as a body. So as we remember that God uses ordinary people, He uses people from various cultures and various backgrounds, and He gifts people differently and calls them to different tasks, we should never doubt that God has a plan for us. That He has a plan for us in the building of His kingdom. We may not all be an Apostle Paul called to plant churches. We may not all be an Aristarchus called to shepherd a church, but nonetheless we are called to be His servants and He can use us mightily. So with that in mind, let's look at the first of three characteristics. With the idea in mind that we are all called to be faithful servants, let's look at the first of three characteristics of faithful servants highlighted in this text. Number one, we 
are to be committed to Christ. Faithful servants are committed to Christ. In other words, faithful servants are faithful to Him. Not to themselves, not to others. They are faithful to Him. We see this in the following way in this passage. Paul refers to Tychicus as a faithful servant and fellow bondservant. He refers to Onesimus as a faithful and beloved brother. Aristarchus as a fellow prisoner. He refers to Mark and and Justice as fellow workers for the kingdom. Epaphras as a bond slave. He refers to Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he encourages Archippus, Archippus to take heed to the ministry. You see, these people were faithful to Christ. They were committed to Christ. Much of Christendom the broader spectrum of Christianity, those who call themselves Christians, who refer to themselves as Christians, today, much of Christendom has adopted the view that being a Christian simply means intellectual assent. That you just agree to some certain things, that you believe some certain things, and therefore that is what makes a Christian. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into this trap. See, the early church understood that being a Christian meant following Jesus. Being a Christian meant counting the cost. Whereas much of what we hear today is the prosperity gospel. We hear, Jesus wants to bless you. He wants to make you happy. He wants to heal you from all sickness. And while happiness and blessings and sometimes healing can be part of the Christian life, the primary message of Jesus was repentance. Repentance from sin and radical commitment to His kingdom. The primary message is not build your kingdom but be part of mine. That's why Jesus said things like Luke 9, verses 23-24. through He said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake, he is the one who will save it. And we read this and we forget what the cross was. It's, it's the ancient equivalent of the electric chair. In modern terms, Jesus would be saying, go, whoever wants to follow Me must sit in an electric chair. He must be willing to die for Me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, lays down his life for My sake, he's the one who will save it. And He said in Luke 14, 26-27, He said, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are harsh words. If anyone comes to me, they come to Jesus, and they don't hate their own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, their family, and even his own life, Jesus says he cannot be my disciple. He goes on and says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus taught that our commitment to Him must supersede even our commitment to our families. That means if we're faced with an either-or situation, either Jesus or our family, our reaction should be to follow Jesus. We think, that's crazy. That doesn't happen in the world today. I assure you, it does happen in the world today. If you're a Muslim and you choose to follow Jesus, it's an either-or situation. Which is it going to be? Your family or Jesus? See, the Bible calls again and again and again for radical commitment. 
When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 38, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. With all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. I don't know about you, but I don't live that out well. That I don't say that every day, with all of my being, I am constantly, always loving the Lord, my God. But there are times, even last night, I was up late, finishing up some last minute things on the message and kind of getting it down in my head. And I said, not, you know, I need to, I need to spend some time in prayer. I said, you know what I need more than anything right now? I just need to sit in front of the TV and relax for an hour. I just need to let my brain dump, right? And at the end of the day, is it wrong? Not necessarily. But was I, what was I loving? And in that instance, I was loving myself more than God. See, we need to check our hearts all the time. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. So having seen that faithful servants are, number one, committed to Christ, let's consider the second point. The second point I want to draw out is that faithful servants are committed to His church. Faithful servants are committed to His church. In other words, they care about other believers. We can clearly see this in the passage. Let's go back and consider what Paul says about each of these people. The Tychicus, he says he's... uh, We see him serving in the church by bringing information to encourage people's hearts. He cares about the people. Onesimus was once a runaway slave. He returns so that he can bring the church information about Paul's imprisonment. Luke and Demas, they send their greetings, as do Aristarchus and Mark and Justice, who Paul says, they've been an encouragement to me. These guys are an encouragement to Paul because they cared about the church. Epaphras, it says, sends his greetings. And he has a deep concern for the believers in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then Paul tells Archippus, he says, take heed to the ministry, the caring for the spiritual needs of others, that you may fulfill it. So the point I'm trying to make is that for every one of these people, what naturally followed a commitment to Christ was a commitment to His church. In other words, what naturally follows love for Jesus is a love for His bride. That's why, going back to Matthew 22, Following his answer as to what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. He says, do you want to know what the greatest commandment is? I can can do better. I can sum up the whole Old Testament for you. You want me to sum up the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is is the heart of the Old Testament. That's what it says. You see, it starts with loving God with everything we have. And the natural result of that is loving others. That's why in John 13.35, Jesus said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He said it differently in 1 John 4.20. He said it from the negative aspect. He said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God 
whom he has not seen. That if somebody says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. Because he can't love his brother whom he's seen. Or if he can't love his brother whom he's seen, he can't love God whom he hasn't seen. You see, we see this love for believers played out well in Acts 2. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, we read the following. Speaking of the disciples, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, they were living in such a way that they loved each other. They understood the command to love one another. They understood what Jesus had done for them and it motivated them to love. And when they did that, they were having favor with all the people. The people said, those, those guys, they're the disciples. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Somebody said to me today, I don't want to call them out or put them on the spot, but they said to me, uh, we have a meal at home. It's ready to go. We're bringing somebody home with us, right? Praise God. And shame on me for not doing that as well, Right? That they understand the need to love one another. That somebody's coming home today with me because I've got a meal, it's ready to go. Because I need to share that love. Taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, day by day, continuing with one mind. Breaking bread from house to house. See, the early church, they understood it. There are some... 59 or so one another's in the New Testament. The one another's refer to the way we're to respond to one another. Here's just a few of them. Challenging, challenging words. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Serve one another. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider each other better than yourselves. Do not lie to one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Don't slander one another. Don't grumble. Confess your sins. Pray. Offer hospitality. Clothe yourselves in humility. And the list goes on and on and on. You see, just as Scripture calls us to a radical love and commitment to Jesus, so also Scripture calls us to a radical love and commitment to other believers. One of the things that breaks my heart, and I've been guilty of it, is talking bad about Christ's bride. You know, I think, I think of instances where I've had somebody speak poorly of 
my bride and how much that hurts me. And then I think of Christ who died for His bride, the church. And then when we speak poorly of His church, we're spitting on His bride. And I'm not saying that we don't admonish one another. I'm not saying that we don't call each other out because we are to do those things clearly from Scripture. We need to make sure that we are building each other up in Christ. And part of building each other up is doing those very things. You see, but we are called to show a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love to the church. Love that is patient. Love that is kind. It is not jealous. Love that does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love that doesn't act unbecomingly. Love that doesn't seek its own. Love that is not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Love that does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love that rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You see, that kind of love only flows out of someone who has experienced the love of Jesus. We can't expect, nor should we ever expect, the world to have that kind of love. It only flows out of one who has experienced the love of Christ. And by the way, it will flow out of those who love Jesus. It just will. It's it's not always without work. So don't hear me say that. Don't hear me say that if you're not perfect and loving other people and living out these things, that what the problem is, you're not a believer. But I am saying it's possible that if you consistently fail to love others, it's possible that you are not a believer. Scripture calls us to examine ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. When we love Christ, love for others will flow out of us, though it's sometimes with work and effort. Some people are just more cuddly than others, right? (laughs) But when when we remember what Christ did for us on the cross it should motivate us to love. That when I remember my sin, not just my sin from many years ago, not that I was 19 and I was doing horrible and wretched things and involved in alcohol and debauchery and all the stuff of the world, that I did those things and God forgave me and now I've just been so awesome since then, but that I got up this morning wretched and wicked and spiteful and hateful a hater of God in some respect, that I got up and blasphemed the breath that He gave me from the very minute I woke up and said, really? Five o'clock already? Right? That I'm constant need of forgiveness when I remember that and then I remember what He died for, when I remember His love, I have a hard time not loving Mark Copperthwaite. Right? That, that I have to then in turn... Love because of what He has done for me and because of what He's done for His bride. So having seen that faithful servants are committed to Christ and they're committed to His church, they care about other believers, let's consider the third point I want to draw out from this text. Faithful servants are committed to prayer. Faithful servants are committed to prayer. Paul just got done saying in verse 2 of chapter 4, devote yourselves right, to prayer. Paul's talked about prayer throughout his ministry, throughout this letter. He opened the letter by letting the Colossian believers know that he was praying for them as he often opens his letters. And he continued by encouraging them, as I mentioned, to be devoted to prayer themselves. And now in this section, we're once again reminded that faithful servants are committed to prayer. 
In verse 8, chapter 4, Paul says that he is sending Tychicus in order that you may know about our circumstances and he may encourage your hearts. He says, I'm sending Tychicus that you may know about our circumstances as I'm here in prison and that he may encourage your hearts. And some of you say, what does that have anything to do with prayer? And the obvious implication of this verse is that the believers in Colossae had been praying for Paul. That they were on their knees and they would be both encouraged with an update and they'd be motivated to continue to pray. To say that Paul just wanted them to know what was going on is foolish. Paul didn't just say, I'm going to send Tychicus because you got to know what's going on. He's sending Tychicus so that they can pray. The man who told them, be devoted to prayer, was certainly sending this information with the expectation that prayers would follow. Then in verse 12 we read that Epaphras was always laboring earnestly for the Colossians in his prayers. Remember, Epaphras was the one who uh, more than likely planted the church in Colossae, that he'd heard the gospel from Paul and his preaching, brought it back to Colossae, and he planted the church, he started the church there, and now he's ministering with Paul, so he has a deep concern for the believers in Colossae. And once again, we see the same kind of progression that we saw before. His commitment to Christ led to a commitment to Christ's church. Here he is, he hears the gospel, he gets saved, and he has to. He has to share the gospel with others. So he has a commitment to the growing, the building up of Christ's church. And that commitment leads to a commitment to pray. See, Epaphras was always laboring earnestly. Can you imagine? Always laboring earnestly. The idea of laboring is the idea when the disciples are fishing and they say, but Master, we've been fishing all night. We've been working hard all night long. And we've caught nothing. And some of us say, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've caught nothing. God has not seen fit to answer my prayer. Well, Epaphras, he labored. He labored earnestly, even when it meant that it felt like at times, I'm sure, that he was laboring with no result. That at times he felt like God was not answering his prayer, but I assure you, God was. God answers in various ways, not always the way we expect, and not always in the timing that we would expect Him to answer our prayer. Sometimes He tells us to wait, for sure. But here's the thing, He labored, even when it was hard. I wonder how many of us have prayed. I'm ashamed to say that I don't pray for this church as well as I should. I remember one time, and I was at another church, all of the elders... Uh, we gathered on a Saturday night and we spent the whole night in prayer from Saturday night to the Sunday morning worship service with the intent that we would not let people know that we had been up praying, right? Because the point of the prayer was not to look all shaggy, shabby and right bent out of shape the next morning. The point of the prayer was to make sure that we were praying to the God of the harvest, that we would make sure that we were praying to God who would build His church and pray that he would, His perfect work would be done in the church. And that we would not be glorified, but that He would be glorified. And I'm ashamed to say, I don't, I don't do that often enough. I know I need to grow in laboring in prayer. See, because clearly, faithful servants 
are committed to prayer. So lastly, I want you to notice that Paul says, at the end of this passage, he says, remember me, or remember my imprisonment. Or the ESV says, remember my chains. Most people want to be remembered. Um, Anytime a U.S. president gets about halfway through their second term, you start hearing talks about what their legacy will be. For a while now, that's what we've heard about uh, Barack Obama's. What will his legacy be? What will he leave behind as a remembrance? How will he be remembered? Will it be for Obamacare? Will it be for Guantanamo Bay? What will it be that he will be remembered for? Paul's point, however, is not, remember my imprisonment, because he wants to leave a legacy. You see, Paul's point is, remember my imprisonment. He's saying, remember my circumstances and pray. You see, for the faithful servants in Colossae, the natural response to remembering Paul's imprisonment was to pray for him. The natural response when they remembered that Paul was in prison was to get on their knees and pray because faithful servants are committed to prayer. So just to review... Faithful servants, they're committed to Christ. Faithful servants are committed to His church. They care about other believers. And faithful servants are committed to prayer. So the question is this. How do we apply all of this, both individually, corporately, and specifically, here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take those truths and apply them to our lives here? Well, number one, we must first and foremost... We must commit ourselves to Christ. We must take up our cross and follow Him daily. You see, we're called to live for His glory. To lay down our own lives. Not to live for our glory, but to live for His. John MacArthur says it well when he says, Discipleship entails a a life of total self-denial. A humble disposition toward others. A wholehearted devotion to, to the Lord alone. A willingness to obey His commands in everything. An eagerness and sense, an eagerness to sense Him even in His absence. And a motivation that comes from knowing He is well pleased. A, a life of total self-denial. That's the way we are called to live. To commit ourselves to Christ and Christ alone. And out of that commitment, we must let flow out of us a commitment to His church. You see, we must take seriously the teachings of Scripture with regard to how we treat one another. In order to do this, we must continually ask ourselves, how am I showing others that they're more important than me? And see, this kind of one-anothering requires more than just Sunday morning interaction. It's not just about being polite to one another on Sunday morning. It's about loving one another, putting others' interests before our own. And by the way, that's not just my job, but it is my job. So it's not just my job to put your interest above my own, but it is my job as well. As a member of this church, no more than Bill, no more than, than Mark, no more than Richard, that I am called to put your interest above my own, that I am called to sacrifice my time, my life for Christ, and then ultimately be committed to His church in light of that. We're all called to do that. I've been through many, many a church meetings where somebody said, I was sick and the pastor never called me. Probably true. 
The question is, when was the last time you called somebody when they were sick? You see, we're called to be the church. We're called to love one another. Again, by way of reminder, this is more than we can do in our own strength. If we're going to be committed to one another the way Scripture commands us, we must be committed to Christ. That one flows out of the other. See, the Gospel has to serve as our motivator. So when I don't feel like loving the church, what I need to do is not pull myself up by the bootstraps, but instead I need to remember what Christ did for me. And when I remember what Christ did for me, then I have no other choice but to love the church because it's His bride. And then lastly, we must commit ourselves to prayer. I'd encourage you, keep a prayer journal. Keep a prayer journal so you can see how God works and moves through your prayer life. I'd encourage you to pray through the Scriptures. The Psalms are a great way to start that. If you're unsure of how to do that, I'd encourage you to see Matt. Matt has some great information on praying through the Psalms. Or read the prayers of others. Right? The Valley of Visions, a great book. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And oftentimes, when I get up early in the morning and I'm discouraged and I'm thinking, how am I ever going to get up and share God's Word this morning? Sometimes what I, what I need is just to spend time in prayer. And often reading through those prayers invigorates my soul. Praise God for those men who wrote those prayers. And then share prayer requests and praises with others. Don't live in a vacuum. Right? We're called to live as a body together. Pray on Tuesday nights. Pray during your small groups. Pray over the phone with each other. Just call each other up and say, hey, you know, can we spend a minute praying? For no other reason than to just say, let's just pray for just a couple of minutes. Do you have time? One of the ways I think this plays out is we think of Lucy's aunt, right? Who is dying, who's going home to be with the Lord. And we're a body. And when I think of when my body's hurt, if my shoulders hurt, what does my hand do? It immediately extends itself to my shoulder, grabs a hold of my shoulder. And in the same way, when Lucy's hurt, the whole body should feel that pain, should respond to that pain, and should lift her up in prayer. Should lift that situation up in prayer. You see, because we love Jesus, we love Lucy. And then we pray for her. And instead, I think sometimes, I know I'm guilty, we go home, we forget to pray, we never pray. And what we need is a bigger picture of the Gospel. We need to renew our commitment to Christ. And remember that He died for His bride. That He died for Lucy. And the natural response is to love Lucy and to lift her up in prayer, to lift up His church in prayer. So that's my challenge. Commit yourself to Christ. Commit yourself to His church. And commit yourself to prayer. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today and for the grace You've given us. God, I thank You for Your Gospel. Thank You for the salvation that exists only through Your Son, Jesus. I thank You that though I once was lost, I have now been found. That though I was once blind, I can now see, not because of my effort, but by Your grace and Your grace alone. God, in light of the grace that You've shown me, In light of the grace that You've shown Your believers, help us 
to be committed to your church. God, as we commit ourselves to you and we live our lives for your glory, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to do it all for your glory, may that also motivate us to love your bride and serve her and build her up and care for her as we are called to do so that you might be glorified. And may it also motivate us to pray. God, give us a love, a love that surpasses all understanding, not just for each other, but a love that flows from a love for you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.